Hello and welcome to the Gradient Podcast. The Gradient is a digital magazine that aims to be a place for discussion about research and trends in artificial intelligence and machine learning. This podcast is an extension of that. We interview various people in the field of AI, ranging from researchers to practitioners and beyond. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Anna Rogers. Anna Rogers is a postdoctoral associate at the University of Copenhagen, working with the research groups in the Center for Social Data Science and Machine Learning section. Her main research area is natural language processing with focus on interoperability and evaluation of deep learning models. She's also known for her work on improving peer review in NLP and as an organizer of a workshop on insights from negative results in NLP. Uh, thank you for joining us for this episode, Anna. Thanks for having me. Alrighty, so let's uh, dive straight in. And one question I like to ask uh, many academics is: I think many academics have an interesting journey that leads them towards pursuing a PhD and diving into research. So, could you give us the story on how you want wound up deciding to do a PhD, and maybe also how you wound up doing that at the University of Tokyo? Well, um, I come from Ukraine and I majored in linguistics and translation studies in my undergrad and I learned English, French and Japanese and the latter was pretty unsuccessful. Um, but I was fascinated by the language and culture and I was very lucky to win the Montbosho scholarship and go to the University of Tokyo. And actually the original plan there was to do frame semantics. So uh, more in the linguistic direction. But then NLP was starting uh, to go really big and I was lucky to have an advisor who just didn't mind when my project took a turn towards NLP. And uh, I also was lucky to have collaborators with whom I could kind of learn on the job. Um, so it's a pretty different path than deciding to pursue a certain career in a place that is best known for that career. So uh, and has a kind of blueprint, such as doing a CS PhD in Georgia Tech or something. Um, but this kind of path, it gives you a certain kind of agency, so to say. Um, so you don't have a blueprint, but uh, because, you know, research and the world in general and NLP, they're all changing all of the time. Uh, this gives you experience in deciding what exactly you want to do and, uh, and a sense of perspective and, you know, responsibility for deciding what you want to do and how. So, yeah, that's how I ended up here. All right. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I think with kind of any PhD, to some extent, you never really know where you wind up. So you have to figure it out on the fly. And, and that's part of the fun part. Indeed. Yeah. So then after your PhD, you were a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Massachusetts. And now you are in Denmark, of course. So it seems like you've lived in quite diverse places uh, over your career. Uh, so how do you find kind of adjusting to those different cultures and maybe the different research communities? And uh, yeah, is that something you wanted to pursue? Well, being a linguist helps. So learning the language is always the first thing. Um, but uh, yeah, after, after you've lived in Japan, you generally become quite sensitive to how things are done and what are the norms and uh, maybe the awareness that your own way of doing things is not necessarily the only or the best one. And that I think is generally uh, something that is valuable for being a researcher in general. Interesting. Yeah, I, I know personally when I moved to the United States uh, from Israel, there was a bit of culture shock in the U.S. People maybe act a bit differently uh, in various ways. 
Uh, and I don't know if you were in the U.S. prior to moving here. So, um, yeah, what was your experience in, in that sense? Uh, in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, I moved there in 2017, so um, very soon after Trump election. Uh, <laughs> so, so it was not just uh, the experience of moving to the U.S., but the experience of moving to the Trump's U.S. And, um, yeah, um, I was kind of trying to always think that uh, things, the way things are right now are maybe not the way things are supposed to be. <laughs> maybe this is temporary. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, also just in terms of uh, kind of the interpersonal interactions of people, I, I did find that people are, at least for me, uh, maybe <laughs> more polite. I would imagine that's not true uh, with uh, going from Japan and, you know, a little louder, a little more friendly. Is that something you found? Um, well, yes, but uh, the biggest shock was, uh, um, again, coming from Japan, uh, the public transport and um, the general <laughs> degree of sanitation. And I was in Boston, not in New York. Ah. <laughs> and still... <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I happened to visit uh, Japan for a conference and it was uh, pretty impressive. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I re immediately wanted to visit again just because of how different it was. And then, yeah, most recently you're in Denmark. Uh, and again, I'm curious as someone who hasn't been to Europe as much, Uh, what you found in terms of um, maybe the research practices and also just the interpersonal uh, cultural differences? Well, Denmark is awesome. I can say this without any reserve and qualifications. Um, there's uh, amazing groups for NLP specifically, uh, two strong universities which are, who are building up and are producing way more publications for, the, for a country this size and top conferences. Um, It is also a very happy middle between um, high quality and standard of living and cleanliness and um, um, not being quite so tightly regulated uh, in all senses as Japan. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, uh, the pastries are good um, and uh, the weather is uh, not as bad as it is often made to be. Uh, as it may seem. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm quite happy where I am. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I spent a bit of time in Switzerland and uh, likewise, I found a lot of the benefits there, although not <laughs> the cost of living, of course. Um, and the pastries are definitely a plus. Uh, I think people in Europe also appreciate their coffee a bit more, which is <laughs> Oh, yes, coffee, coffee is very serious here. Like you will be deported if you don't have a, uh, the, the best possible coffee <laughs> and the best possible coffee machine. Um, but, but also I think uh, Europe is genu generally um, quite a place that can be expected to become a leader in our field, um, especially in the in terms of, um, you know, regulation and considering the social impact of AI and uh, how we should structure our relationship with uh, the big players. So um, they're definitely at the forefront in this area and uh, also perhaps unusually for an LP researcher, I'm actually currently in uh, social sciences department uh, in an interdisciplinary center where I can daily talk to anthropologists and sociologists and uh, um, 
all kinds of people who we normally never meet and uh, who we definitely should meet more because they actually have uh, more insights about uh, how what we are doing actually changing is actually changing the world. Cool. Yeah, that's uh, certainly something that seems to be increasingly important uh, and something that the CS community hasn't been the best about. Uh, so uh, certainly something that we'll need more of. And it's cool to hear that you're working uh, in that sense. Uh, and I guess we'll we'll touch on that a bit more when we get to ethical review and, and some of that uh, kind of thing. But before that, uh, let's touch a bit on your research work in NLP and, and more in a broader sense, not diving too deep because uh, not everyone is an expert on that, including me. Uh, so earlier on, uh, you've done quite a bit of work on investigating word embeddings uh, and, and in particular a, a bit of work on analogy making. And I think analogy making is one of these things that uh, many people are aware of a little bit and, and found very neat early on of like, you know, uh, king plus woman is uh, queen. And more recently, there's been kind of a re-evaluation of that. So yeah, let's, let's just take a look on some of your work there. So one thing you, that you published was uh, word embeddings, analogies, and machine learning uh, beyond king minus man plus woman is queen. Could you just give us a quick summary on, on sort of the motivation there and uh, what was the main idea? Well, um, I guess I can sum all my work in this area by just saying that this is a pretty unfortunate illustration of how difficult it is to make a negative result widely known. Mm -hmm. um, uh, just uh, th this uh, world analogy phenomenon is maybe the, the poster child for word embeddings, and uh, it, it has been everywhere until 2018, and uh, it's still uh, found uh, in most scenarios where people talk about word embeddings. Um, but uh, I'm not even the only person to say this. Uh, there's lots of work also by uh, Kate Willemova and Dal Linson that shows that repeatedly shows that uh, this phenomenon just doesn't really generalize outside the relations that it initially was tested on, which happened to be included in the Google analogy test set. And uh, uh, also uh, there's uh, several articles, including mine, that show that uh, the success with which you can uh, identify the correct analogy with um, this linear vector offset mechanism, uh, well, it just depends uh, on the cosine uh, similarity between the target word and the, uh, and the source word. So if you have uh, king minus man plus woman equals queen, uh, you are only likely to find queen if woman and queen happen to be pretty close. Um, because uh, the difference between king and man happens to be actually not dramatically different, not, not dramatically large. So uh, actually, without excluding king and man and woman from the set of possible answers, you will not actually go get anywhere. You will stay just on the woman vector. If you exclude them, then you will get to the next closest word, which uh, if, you are, if it happens to be queen, then you're lucky. This uh, is kind of the gist of uh, all this research. And um, um, yeah, uh, beyond that, it's just a sad story of how I and two other research groups have been shouting about this for years. And still, everywhere you see, where you see word analogies, you see uh, word embeddings, you see these word analogies. Yeah, it's it's a kind of sad story of, you know, once you get a narrative and a popular idea, yep. you know, correcting it can be very difficult. Uh, I, I did see you have a paper called The Too Many Problems of Analogical Reasoning <laughs> yeah. of Word Vectors. Yeah, yeah. 
And I, I guess it highlighted a lot of that, as you as you said. So you you highlighted kind of the difficulty of uh, presenting negative results, which I guess this was of you know uh, word vectors don't quite work as people expected. I guess yeah, I'm curious what you found uh, it it was like. I mean, did you get rejections early on? Did you figure out how to? phrase your work or position your work in a way that people accepted and and yeah have you become more positive on it or is it still kind of the same uh well um the two biggest uh, papers that presented actual negative results so uh, they ended up just uh, going to workshops and uh, even that is sometimes problematic especially if you have a short paper it's it's pretty no- well known phenomenon that at least in NLP conferences your chances of uh, accepting getting a short paper accepted are like 10 percent lower <laughs> than the chances mm-hmm. of uh, getting a long paper accepted um so yeah in my case i ended up just uh, submitting this to workshops and um I suspect this is what happens in many other cases. And this is also partly I founded this uh, workshop for um, insights from negative results in NLP with uh, Joe Sadok and uh, Anna Rumsiski. Um, we have our second iteration this year at MNLP. So the idea is to provide a venue where things uh, which are negative, the negative results from which people can still learn can be reliably published and uh, also where people can come to find what doesn't work <laughs> because <laughs> this in many cases uh, will save you more, more time than uh, trying to uh, just take any papers that have been published as positive results and trying to uh, go from them assuming that they will replicate. Yeah, it's funny. I've, I've found in many occasions talking to colleagues and say, oh, this seems like a fun idea. Maybe we should explore it. And then they say, oh, well, I tried it and it didn't work. And then right? nobody knows. Yeah, right. exactly. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's very cool to see these workshops and, and greater efforts, which I think also exist in, in computer vision and, and so on. It's funny that uh, this is less done in AI because, uh, you know, in AI, especially because it's so fast moving, all the time this happens of like someone publishes a paper and later someone finds that, well, the technique actually, the proposed idea didn't really do much. If you just do the baseline appropriately, famously with LSTMs, this this happened, you know, it it turns out to be the same. So (laughs) that was an actual progress. Exactly. And uh, I think uh, Transformers just made things a lot worse in this respect because as as models grew larger and larger, it became less and less feasible to just do good controlled experiments. We don't even compare these huge pre-trained language models. uh, Well, we, we can't compare them because they're not even trained on the same data. And uh, uh, when we say that the difference in uh, performance on glue or superglue or whatever benchmark is due to the architecture, we, we can't tell that. We don't know that. And uh, we also don't know how much is due to this particular instance of a model versus the architecture in general. And yet, this is how it is usually interpreted, that whatever state-of-the-art plus uh, 0.2% improvement is due to the architecture. Right. And I've also wondered in the past, you know, when people sort of transition and especially with transformers, this happened of like, you know, there was Bert and then there was a whole family, you know, an avalanche of work. And then sometimes you have to wonder, you know, is there progress just because all of these researchers are piling on and working on this one approach? 
And as a result, you make progress just because, you know, there's this collective push. But if you pushed on LSTMs or another architecture, you know, you could get the same results. Uh, exactly. And uh, th this is um, maybe one of the um, things that uh, is unfortunately perpetuated by uh, peer review at the moment. Um, if we... Uh, okay, it, it is a well-known thing that humans uh, often rely on uh, prototypes and examples and heuristics uh, when they have to make decisions in high uncertainty situations. And by definition, peer review is such a situation, right? It, it's very hard to tell, uh, especially when you can't rerun any experiments, whether a, any given piece of, piece of research is uh, uh, valid and solid and uh, can be influential and something that people will build on. Um, and this is essentially what we are asked to predict as peer reviewers, right? Um, so uh, what happens sometimes is uh, that we, instead of answering the question, is this a good paper? We answer the question, is this paper similar to other papers that are currently getting published? And mm -hmm. this is a recipe for accepting more transformer papers or whatever is the popular thing. Uh, it's exactly what happened with Vertovec. There was a gazillion variations in Vertovec. And uh, right now we have a gazillion variations of OnBird. Um, I review some of them in this uh, survey paper, the primary invertology. There's so many modifications of the training regime of um, of how to mask, of what to mask, of uh, how many heads and players you need. But... Um, the, the fact is, uh, very few of these studies actually have uh, or had possibly a budget to control to run really well controlled experiments. Right, right, and yeah, it sounds like a great transition to uh, discussing NLP uh, reviewing, which you've done a lot of work on. Uh, before that, just a quick note of something I've been wondering uh, about. Uh, is it sort of a, a fair assessment that with bird transformers, um, word vectors are a little bit obsolete? Uh, I know in research, maybe no one is really doing it. Do you think in a practical sense, if you're building a little project or you know, trying to prototype something, would they still be useful? Um, I think they are actually useful in many situations in which you can't run bird. <laughs> Um, and, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I have never worked in industry, so I, I wouldn't know what uh, they're doing, but I would imagine that uh, you always need to start with a sound, simple baseline, and this would be that. Um, plus, uh, there are contexts in which uh, you actually need to perform world-level tasks, and uh, how to do that with contextualized representations is still an open question. Again, if anybody is curious about that, there are references in my survey uh, for different ideas about how to convert contextualized representations into static ones. But given that you do need static representations, for example, for world, align for world alignment or you know, some other task that, uh, that relies on individual words, um, then <laughs> why, why not? Yeah, exactly. And uh, actually, this reminds me, I, I used word vectorism in my most research, uh, recent paper. I used GloVe, and this was for cross-vision language uh, reasoning, and it, it kind of just worked. So at that point, I was like... Exactly. And uh, actually, I think it's all, always um, important to have as a baseline just to, to have some kind of reality check. We have... Uh, the tendency to focus on the final 
the top number that your fanciest model will produce. But an equally valid question is, how much does that buy you compared to LSTM and Glove? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? how, how much do you get for the amount of compute you spend <laughs> compared to this uh, simple and efficient baseline? Right, and that's another thing with peer review and something people have been pushing a little bit is when you report your results, don't just report the final number, report the energy cost, you know, the Mm -hmm. uh, size, these kind of things, which still isn't very common, unfortunately, right? Well, in uh, NLP conferences, in, in top NLP conferences, uh, we are now um, usually have we usually have some kind of uh, reproducibility checklist, building on the work of uh, Jesse Dodge uh, from LNAI, and um, this would be um, well, giving at least the reviewers some more information about uh, how efficient efficient this is and how much it is worth. Plus, um, there's uh, more and more work about discussing the possible um, other dimensions in which uh, uh, we can have state-of-the-art beyond the performance. And uh, yes, there, there was this uh, sustained NLP workshop focusing specifically on efficiency. Um, recently, we had green NLP track at uh, NACL. And uh, then we, we could just as easily consider uh, multi-dimensional leaderboards as proposed by Katharine and Dan Jurovsky. Basically, the idea would be that instead of uh, just reporting accuracy, you report also how much training data you used, uh, how much compute you used, um, how, what's the inference time, what's um, um, well, and then things that are more difficult to quantify, like uh, how um, cognitively plausible your model is, how interpretable your model is. Uh, you could consider all of this. And uh, if you report that, then this actually gives the practitioners uh, more room to choose the model that would be better in their specific context, which is fundamentally what they're interested in. Right, definitely. And uh, to some extent, this has also been pushed in vision um, not at all in reinforcement learning so far, but maybe eventually. Uh, so at, at least the trends are, are going towards that. And yeah, it's, it's I guess, the growing pains of this field, which is, you know, exploding. Um, so you've touched a lot on uh, various aspects on peer review already, just sort of naturally. So that's a good bridge to talking about your work very specifically. So you had this paper, what can we do to improve peer review in NLP, which was also featured on the gradient. Um, so yeah, w- what can we do uh, beyond some of the things we mentioned? You know, what are maybe the main pain points and the main suggestions? Well, uh, yeah, we, we can do lots of things. Um, um, and maybe the, the first thing to do is to just recognize that actually, uh, no, the, this doesn't have to be as bad as it is now. Because um, I definitely have seen some people just saying, okay, peer review is just by definition noisy, therefore let's just accept it for what it is and maybe even just give up on it altogether. Um, let's just switch to the um, to just using citation counts on preprints as, as metric of uh, scientific progress. And we can't do this, A, because um, uh, this is not what uh, the hiring committees, at least in academia, expect, and we can't change those. Um, and uh, B, we can't do that because this is very skewed towards um, famous researchers um, if you have a large following on Twitter, this pretty much guarantees that you will be <laughs> well cited. 
Um, so no, this, this is not something that uh, is viable, but um, the fact that we will never be able to get like a perfect peer review system doesn't mean that we can't improve it. Same as with democracy, it is, it is bad, but it definitely has got, bad, has got better. Right. Um, yeah. I've yeah. seen I've seen a proposal by someone that, you know, we shouldn't do a review, we should just dump it, everyone post to archive, and it was like some sort of crowdsourcing, you know, upvotes, things like that. And you know, it yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much thinking went into that proposal really. Well, yeah, uh, we already have uh, uh, a lot of social biases even within our field. Even though we think that you know we are researchers and being objective, uh, it, there has been research that shown that yes, even within our field, we cite women authors later uh, less, and even without within our field, uh, uh, we uh, pay less attention to um, talks by authors from one country than for authors from another country, and uh, uh, just dumping it into a completely social network kind of situation where. Uh, basically, the winner takes it all. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know that. Um, well, the, the whole function of anonymity in peer review is uh, to ensure that uh, somebody up and coming, an unknown graduate student from um, an unknown lab and maybe from a developing country, by doing good research, they do have a chance of uh, getting recognition. Uh, and uh, acknowledgement, and uh, if we skew the system even more than it is towards uh, the already recognized uh, labs and people, then we will be uh, decreasing that opportunity. Yeah, and it's particularly relevant to AI, maybe, I don't know necessarily how to compare it to other fields, but uh, in AI, there is definitely a culture of kind of famous researchers, star <laughs> researchers, which, you know, you'd, you'd think uh, we would want to not do more of and instead encourage more diversity, more recognition of many people because it's a community after all, right? Yeah, and they, um, I think maybe when such proposals are made, maybe somehow it is in the assumption that we can um, keep uh, a lot of papers afloat, uh, that the attention of the community grows <laughs> together with the amount of papers that we are producing. And that is definitely not the case. The attention span, span of humans have, has not really evolved. <laughs> Uh, since, since the Stone Age, right? So we, we still look at Twitter for, I don't know, um, 10, 15 minutes and we grab top five people, the five papers that people are talking about and we're done, right? Yeah. And uh, just by how many papers the top labs are producing, uh, chances are that these five papers are going to be from them. Mm-hmm. Right. I guess one hope is to some extent, at least now, there are so many niches and specific topics and specific problems people address, even if you're not sort of the most known within your specialty, you know, your collaborators, people you that you build on top of their work, hopefully, you know, they are aware of what you're doing and they appreciate it and recognize it. But uh, of course, it's not going to be the case for the majority of researchers, especially outside that specific topic. 
And actually, um, just the fact that you are in some very specific uh, subfield where, yes, you could also more easily build up reputation for yourself, presumably, um, is uh, the fact that th there is kind of a bias against uh, niche topics, niche mm -hmm. papers, um, and they are just more difficult to get accepted into the main tracks of conferences. Um, right. So... Uh, on the one hand, uh, we don't want everybody to just work on BERT. <laughs> and on, yeah. on the other hand, again, because people are comparing a given paper to the paper that they know that is getting published, uh, it, it is going to disadvantage these more narrow, more niche topics. It, it's going to look like uh, less people are interested in it. Mm -hmm. um, even though a breakthrough there could be just as important for the field in general. So, yeah, can't win. <laughs> right. Uh, but I guess you can fight maybe the good fight and <laughs> start to counteract these trends. So, again, going back to what can we do to improve peer review, I guess one question is uh, why is peer review so bad or flawed? You know, whatever some of the root causes, does it have to do with the community size or conference size? Or, yeah, why, why are we in this situation in the first place? Well, it's a combination of several factors. So even in a established uh, and more narrow field, like um, less interdisciplinary field like psychology, uh, there's a lot of literature about how peer review is bad. Um, and it is necessarily bad. It is always going to be bad just because uh, we have these artificial uh, low acceptance rates to journals and to conferences. And uh, uh, there isn't a clear decision boundary on which papers are like clearly good and which papers are clearly bad, so which would perfectly map onto this <laughs> target acceptance rate. So uh, there will be some papers which are clearly good um, and there will be quite a lot, usually in conferences, that are clearly bad. But uh, a considerable number of papers will be kind of borderline and uh, uh, by uh, NeurIPS experiment, uh, yeah, they, they, they even show that it's pretty much a coin toss for those borderline papers, depending on which reviewers they get to. So, um, yeah, so this there is this objective factor that, yes, peer review is objectively different because difficult because we don't have uh, a clear decision boundary that clearly maps onto our target <laughs> acceptance rate cutoff. Mm -hmm. So this is objective. Um, and uh, then there is an exacerbating factor that our field is very interdisciplinary and we have, uh, yes, uh, engineers and linguists and um, um, more cognitive science researchers and some psychologists and um, we should have even more people helping from other perspectives. And uh, uh, the kinds of uh, methodology that they use, the kinds of contributions that they make, the kinds of papers that they write, they, they are quite different. And people from one field, uh, one subfield, let's say, um, when they see a methodology or a type of contribution from another subfield, uh, may not necessarily even think that this is research. And uh, a pretty famous by now example is um, um, a machine translation paper that presented a new uh, resource for machine translation and got a review which basically said uh, most of the paper is description of the corpus and contains little scientific contribution. <laughs> yeah. Which is ironic for AI because, you know, a lot <laughs> right. of it is just, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but this is a fundamental mismatch between uh, what we even think uh, that NLP is about. 
And different mm-hmm. people have different ideas of what this field is about. And this adds a layer of complexity onto um, the difficulty with uh, the decision boundary. <laughs> Right. Um, plus, uh, all the papers, again, not just an LLP, but in general, uh, they are fundamentally incomparable because they are all good and bad in different ways. Uh, some has a better methodology, some has uh, a better results action, some has um, like uh, more impressive writing, um, uh, some will be more popular. Like, uh, h- how do you tell which one? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, to, com- to, to, to accept. Uh, if there are no... Um, guidance from uh, the uh, program chairs of a conference who say, okay, we prioritize novelty or we prioritize uh, like unconventional ideas. Uh, then uh, pretty much is everybody left to their own devices and they will go with uh, whatever their own preferences and biases will lead them. And uh, then we get something that looks like a completely random process where you just keep resubmitting until you get accepted. Right. Yeah. I, I recently actually looked at the Neurop ex- experiment, which I think the, the results were published in all the way back in 2014, which mm-hmm. is a whole other you know uh, picture in terms of the size and so on. And uh, the, roughly the results were that depending on your viewers, 60% of accepted papers would not be accepted yep. when you do analysis, right? And um, actually, this is one more factor in uh, in addition to the ones that I have mentioned. Um, the size of the community, it's not just maybe even the size of the community, but the fact that uh, it is growing so fast means that uh, a lot of the reviewers, maybe most reviewers in any given program committee for any given conferences, they are going to be graduate students. And uh, that means that, A, they have not uh, reviewed before, maybe, or they have uh, just uh, done it a couple of times. They have not been probably explained what this is about (laughs) or how to do this properly. Uh, They have not been told what is... um, uh, the overall goal of the process, some seem to be uh, under the impression that their goal is to find a reason to reject the paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially as a u- junior uh, reviewer, I think there's been some research on this where, you know, you, you tend to be more negative and critical mm-hmm. than more senior reviewers. Yeah, um, whereas the goal of the process is actually a to help the authors to improve the paper. Um, and uh, B, to help the program chairs, the area chairs, to uh, make decisions according to uh, whatever their set of criteria is, right? Um, And I I think uh, even though the uh, NLP conferences recently have been trying to create uh, more clear guidelines for each specific conference and uh, to train reviewers, like uh, only yesterday I did another... um, tutorial on uh, peer review at town. Uh, despite all of that, um, uh, a, nobody budgets time for all this training. Mm-hmm. B, everybody's under the impression that actually it's not necessary because, you know, we've always done this uh, ad hoc, so mm-hmm. it must be okay. Right. Um, and uh, the most puzzling thing about all this is that uh, then all of these people uh, who get bad reviews, they will go on Twitter and complain. Um, Think but then about, not do much to try and change well, it, right? Well, not maybe quite realizing that the people who they are talked to, uh, they are exactly the same peer reviewers. Like, right. it, it's not some abstract uh, evil reviewer number two somewhere uh, uh, on the moon. It's uh, it's our fellow 
PhD students. It's our fellow faculty members uh, who are the reviewer number two, and we are talking to them every day. And uh, by just uh, raising awareness of um, the patterns that we notice, which are not very productive, we can actually improve things. And I think, speaking of how things can be re re improved, I think already now in NLP we have made quite a lot of prog progress by just uh, talking about these things a lot more and uh, introducing clear guidelines about certain types of bias which uh, have become just too widely known, like this bias against resource papers or the SOTA heuristic, like uh -huh. uh, you can't accept a paper unless it reports SOTA results. Um, so uh, we not only tell the reviewers, okay, please don't do this. We also tell area chairs, okay, please make sure that the reviewers don't do that. And if they do that, please ask them to uh, rethink. Um, but also the authors are told this. The authors can see these reviewer guidelines. And if the authors uh, find that one of these uh, known heuristics is being used, uh, they can, can flag this for the area chairs. So it's a kind of uh, mutual um, feedback loop, which hopefully will uh, result in improvement, at least at least these specific biases in a few years. Yeah, that's interesting. I've, I've often wondered as a PhD student, you know, you're required to take a bunch of classes in CS and, you know, and technical stuff, but there aren't any classes on actually doing research. But you know? <laughs> I found, you know, not research methodology, not proper science and not reviewing, not giving talks. I mean, they're optional. There's no requirements if, if, if they exist, which is... Interesting because, you know, all of this is universities, you think we can do it. And, and this is crazy, especially given that, um, well, uh, in peer review, you can think of um, your job as just checking the factual correctness of the paper. Uh, like, do, do you believe that the implementation was correct and uh, that uh, this will be reproducible? But this is just one aspect of it, right? When you say that, okay, I want this paper published, it's also a vote on, um, okay, do I believe that this will further the field? Do I believe that uh, this is the um, methodology that should be used more? Uh, and uh, so fundamentally, it is a, a vote on what we should be doing as a field. And if we are asked to do that without <laughs> actually having been asked to think about what the field is, <laughs> it's like uh, you, you are asked on, uh, on spot to come up with an answer of what is the meaning of life. <laughs> And yeah, it's a deep question, right? Yeah. yeah. So the default is maybe like, let's keep doing it the same without thinking too much about it. And uh, obviously, maybe not ideal. Yeah. And I, I'm not saying that we first should uh, define like uh, what everything is and what is the meaning of life and <laughs> universe and everything. But uh, uh, there has to be some middle ground between not thinking about this at all. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, and uh, thinking about is about it just uh, enough to make some kind of more principled decisions about uh, what do you personally endorse as the paper to come at the next conference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, especially this idea of providing guidelines is interesting because that's also something I haven't found too much. You know, there's they lose guidelines in the past, and it does seem like a powerful idea to just propose guidelines, what not to do, what to change, and actually enforce it, which... Well, it, 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 enforcing it is uh, 
difficult. Well, yes, we, we do currently ask uh, RHRs to check at least the, the most obvious uh, biases that uh, we have talked about. But uh, I think uh, there is a powerful feedback mechanism, and this is the authors, because the authors have a <laughs> have, uh, incentive. Yeah, have incentive to uh, see that the reviewer has uh, actually done the job uh, that they were asked to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's a win-win. On that topic, uh, something I also found interesting is that uh, the conference uh, conference NACL or group, yeah, mm-hmm. now has an ethical review process, and this is following on Europe's uh, experiment on doing uh, statement of impacts. It seems like the ethical review process is a little more detailed. It sets out that papers should follow the ACM code of ethics. Um, and it did, did seem like there's some blowback of people wondering, you know, is there, especially a panel uh, of ex- ethical experts, some people really didn't like. So could you explain maybe how that process works and, and why you think it's important to add it? Obviously, you mentioned the biases already, but is there maybe more to add? Um, yeah, so the biases I've been mentioning so far are just the biases uh, that will have uh, the, the social biases and uh, the biases against or for certain types of methodology in, in research. But uh, this actually, it's, the question is not with why I think this is important or not. Uh, as you say, ACL has adopted the, code, the ACM code of ethics. It, it, it's no longer optional. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and uh, again, it. This experiment at NACL, and I should stress that uh, it has been presented as an experiment. It's not like uh, they have everything figured out and it is set in stone from now on. Um, uh, so what the, the difference was that uh, this time, in addition to the regular program committee, uh, there was a set of uh, uh, people who uh, have uh, been thinking about ethics a bit more than average. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So um, CS isn't encouraged as much, at least until recently, um, right? Yeah. And, uh, and then the, they would be getting uh, the papers for extra review if the regular reviewers, so mostly the regular grad students, if, if those students thought that, okay, maybe something is wrong with this paper, but I'm not qualified to, to see how big of a problem it is. So mm-hmm. it's not like that they went through the entire, all the papers and f- found something that they didn't like. Right. Yeah, everything that uh, they reviewed, it was flagged by uh, regular reviewers first. Mm-hmm. And uh, then what happened was that uh, they would uh, review, uh, provide an extra review to these papers and provide their recommendations. And then the program chairs, who are not uh, just AI ex- ethics experts, they uh, 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 the uh, uh, regular, not the researchers, um, they would make the decisions based on both those recommendations and the regular reviewer recommendations, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's not the case that uh, this ethics committee has a veto power <laughs> right. over some research. Um, so... Uh, in uh, again, this was the first time this was ever done, and uh, in NACO, as far as I remember, out of uh, about two thousand submissions, um, maybe about a hundred papers uh, went through this extra review, and only four papers uh, were rejected. And as far as I understand, actually only one was rejected on the grounds of uh, this may uh, 
uh, they, people maybe not have thought things through from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So I, I wouldn't say that there is uh, a huge change of- <laughs> in the outcome, right? And and mind you, this is uh, after MNLP has already published uh, a paper on generating news comments. Hmm. Right. So, uh-huh. uh, 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 and this was without any ethics review, and um, so. And uh, of course, also in Europe, so really bad cases of generating faces from yeah. uh, your voice and, and other examples, but they're pretty flagrant, right? Yeah. So uh, I would say that uh, this one out of two thousand doesn't strike me as uh, improbable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, but. Um, uh, yeah, of course, uh, there is also the um, the position that uh, even one is too many and we should not basically uh, ban any research uh, just based on its long-term implications. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I, I fully understand that position, but uh, I'd say the point is good because this is no longer optional. We do have the ACM Code of Ethics. And right. uh, uh, we it does say uh, do not discriminate, do no do no harm. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, to what degree uh, you are supposed to not discriminate? Well, th- that is a, itself a research question. But at least it's a research question that does need to be posed, right? Right. And uh, also the fact that, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if we just uh, say that. Uh, we don't need to regulate uh, any, we don't need to have any checks on what we can research so we, we can pose any questions and then it's the job of some kind of regulators to make sure that nothing gets uh, actually implemented and deployed in the real world well it's a bit to me like a, the argument that guns don't kill people people <laughs> kill people mm-hmm. so yeah sure people kill people but uh, having more guns does help yeah, it's, it's interesting to me because uh, I think in my first year of PhD, I, I tried to look and see, well, you know, what is the institution's kind of guidance on ethics? What are there for AI research out there, given that there's a lot of thinking about ethics? And the actual thing I found was the ACM code of ethics. And I, I printed it out and, you know, glued it somewhere in my <laughs> office. But this was, you know... Uh, not encouraged at all. And again, there wasn't a class on this, despite it seeming like something that should be taught. Exactly. And uh, I would actually really like to know, um, so uh, I think the debate that is currently raging against, uh, okay, why do we have this ethics review? Uh, Why uh, wasn't there a community-wide vote on whether this should happen or not? And Mm -hmm. what are the exact criteria? Well, I would really like to for, for there to happen some kind of survey on whether people generally think that there should be some checks on long-term implications of uh, what we're doing. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the majority actually was in favor of that um, and in favor of having you know, most, more guidelines on that because, uh, you know, God knows that uh, we have enough work as it is just keeping up with the versions of PyTorch. Right. <laughs> we just don't have the brain power to have these very complex ethical decisions all on our own, all by ourselves. If anybody feels like it, then by all means, you can 
uh, do what you want and write a very thoughtful impact statement and persuade people that that what you're doing is okay. Um, And I would not think that uh, there is some kind of, I don't know, ideology clique that would just be set against certain kinds of research. And by definition, uh, except that it is something that is explicitly in the code of ethics. Um, But if we say that, um, uh, okay, I'm just a regular practitioner who doesn't have the brain power for also thinking about uh, the meaning of life and everything, mm-hmm. uh, then isn't it actually better to know that there is some kind of extra check to make sure that you don't completely screw up in ways that you can't foresee? Uh, I mean, this is this has happened to biomedical research. This is why they have so, so many regulations. And uh, it, it, it protects them, right? It, it, it's for their benefit that they're not allowed to do certain things. Yeah, you'd imagine, you know, review, uh, researchers would rather not, you know, thoughtlessly or maybe because of some ignorance do unethical research and this would help. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, and, and so far, I, I don't actually see that uh, there's um, a, a list of things that are like outright prohibited except for, you know, what, what just completely common sense, like... Don't do research on killer drones. <laughs> right. It's just common sense. Um, and uh, what exactly is uh, okay and not okay to do? Uh, again, this is an evolving process. Nothing has nothing is set in stone. And uh, I, for one, uh, I have seen how the norm formation has uh, been working in uh, peer review in general. And I would assume that uh, beyond things that are um, satisfied in, in the code of ethics, uh, I would very much uh, expect the community to come up with uh, better formulations of things that we um, should be uh, feeling uh, good about doing and, mm-hmm. and, and which ones are not. Right. And this it's is interesting. Just, yeah, it's just for progress. Exactly. And uh, I think also this is interesting because the views aren't just sort of saying, okay, this is accepted, this is rejected. Maybe that's what we care about, but they are supposed to also provide uh, good criticism to suggest how can you improve your research? You know, uh, what's good, what's bad? And yeah, how can you become a better researcher? And uh, in this case, um, having these sorts of ethical processes would also enable researchers to become better educated and more mindful and, and be aware of these dimensions that maybe they haven't been exposed to as much. Exactly. And uh, um, one idea which I think would be very beneficial, um, so I, I, I don't know if uh, you're aware, but uh, let's say the IRBs in the US, uh, the institutional review boards, which are supposed to approve uh, individual projects. Well, this is actually strictly about human subjects and uh, their guidelines say that they just need to consider the project for whether the subjects of the experiment are going to get harmed. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're explicitly told to not consider long-term implications. Mm -hmm. Just if you have uh, the approval from IRB, it doesn't mean that uh, this aspect has been thought through. And the reason it has not been thro- thought through is that the society itself has, you know, not, not uh, engaged with these issues as, 
as much as it uh, should have. Um, and uh, the issue is often considered to be political because, you know, this is a deciding what kind of world we want to live in. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would think about it um, in this way. If we want to to provide uh, the students who do care about these things um, some kind of uh, gui- extra guidance, uh, let's say you are considering a project and you are not sure what the long-term implications could be, uh, we should create some kind of uh, idea pool, some community, some advisory board, yeah, some advisory board, some panel, uh, whose job would be to uh, just help people to think things through. I don't think they uh, should necessarily have a veto power. Um, let's say they uh, point out that this can lead to undesirable consequences X, Y, Z. And then uh, the, uh, the student who proposed the project, they can think of either how to mitigate this or to make an argument of uh, why uh, the benefits outweigh the risks. Uh, but there should be a mechanism to do that and they should have help because these are difficult things. Mm-hmm. Right. And sometimes it is kind of gray where, you know, mm-hmm. it is worthy research, but there's pitfalls, uh, especially we've seen cases of like, should you release a model? Should you not? Mm-hmm. Should you anonymize the data set? There's a lot of these more nuanced questions that just should this research be done? And, and that's where such a board could be very useful on providing guidance before you submit, before you get a review on well, actually, be, be, before you Before you start the project, right? Well, just, so imagine right now you have to um, write a paper um, submitted to three graduate students and, uh, anonymously mm-hmm. and, and wait for three months till you get any kind of uh, feedback outside your lab, right? Right. What if uh, your project could be improved from the outset? <laughs> what if you could... Uh, Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, it reminds me of, um, you know, uh, there's been papers like this on like doing reinforcement learning that matters where they've highlighted problems in methodology and that has had impact of people have changed how they approach research. And this is maybe a, a similar thing. Um, so, okay, I think we, we've covered a lot of it and uh, hopefully we had some researchers who learned some things. Uh, to cap things off, uh, going back to your tutorial and reviewing NLP research, obviously we can't go into all of it and we can recommend any researchers listening to look it up and you know go through it. I, I think it's recorded. Uh, uh, yeah, I have uh, links from, uh, from the talk section of my webpage. Okay, great. Uh, but just to cover a little bit, uh, maybe can you give kind of the main tip or, or something that is the main takeaway for junior reviewers? What is the main thing to be mindful of and, uh, you know, keep in mind as far aside from the specifics, is there some kind of high level message that is like the one thing you need to take away? Right. Um, I guess uh, the main thing is to write the review that you would like to get yourself. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just keep in mind that the recipient of um, that review is probably also a, a graduate student uh, who really doesn't want you to be a reviewer number two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, it's... Uh, Okay, just remember that what you're asked to do is fundamentally a very difficult, uh, very wrought uh, question with uh, 
lots of things stacked against you and uh, you can't really trust yourself because uh, you have all these biases which you're not even aware of. That's because they're biases. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, try to write the review that you would <laughs> like to get. Yeah, try to do your best yeah. uh, within uh, your limitations. Definitely read the instructions because they can be used against you in the rebuttal. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, um, yeah, keep up with uh, everything that is being discussed because uh, these guidelines and uh, the whole idea of what we want to achieve with peer review, it's all such a work in progress. And uh, it's actually fun because this is how the field is getting shaped and like you have a voice in it. Mm-hmm. So why not participate? Um, and um, uh, yeah, I guess be kind. Mm-hmm. You don't... Uh, the, the point of this is uh, actually to help uh, the author to improve the paper. And um, um, that being said, uh, it is always possible to do more experiments. <laughs> <laughs> you can always improve anything. Yeah. Yes, it, it, is, it is always possible to improve anything. Uh, like re- The acceptance rate for short papers is ridiculous, seriously, because uh, there are so many things that obviously can be added to them because they're short papers. <laughs> uh, so um, don't ask the question, can I think of something that can be added to this paper? Can I think of something with which it could be improved? You can always think of something. Mm-hmm. Uh, think of uh, the question, does this paper uh, add uh, answer a question that uh, would be beneficial to know the answer for? Mm. Um, and uh, also remember about the hindsight bias. Once you read the whole paper, the conclusion will seem obvious, especially if the authors did a good writing job. It, it, it will look like, duh. Of course, you could expect that. Just right. read the first part of the paper, um, uh, see what the, what question is being asked, ask yourself whether you want to know the answer to that question and whether you can tell what the answer will be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, then see uh, whether uh, what you see um, is something that uh, others would also like to know. So yeah, this this is not like a one tip, uh, and there's plenty of others uh, in in the tutorial in in my paper. Um, I'm sorry to say that uh, peer review is not something that you can learn to do well in five minutes. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is kind of the point, right? Uh, and uh, it's uh, also precious because uh, this is the thinking that you put in into shaping the field as such. It, it is your vote and what the field is going to be. So why throw it away? Yeah, it's funny because, um, you know, with papers, it adds to your CV, you feel, you know, accomplished. But with reviewers, unfortunately, even though you do, at the end of the day, you are making an impact, you are doing something, it's hard to be as accomplished. Although hopefully, you know, once you write a good review, you feel good about it just by contributing. But there's less external kind of validation well um, yeah I, I wish we had some kind of uh, incentive mechanisms for well we do, we do have some kind of uh, um, rewards for uh, awards for the best reviewers and uh, that's one thing um, but 
uh, I wish the process itself could be um, seen uh, and uh, viewed as something fun. Because I mean, come on, you you get to see a research which nobody else has seen so, so far. <laughs> in, in your area, you were picked because you're an expert. Like and sometimes it's it's quite exciting and interesting. Right? Yeah, and then you get to discuss with other reviewers. What do you think about this paper? Uh, like, how often do you get to talk to somebody not in your lab? Who've read the whole paper. And, <laughs> yeah, yes. You know, yeah. Right? Um, plus, uh, uh, there can be totally some kind of um, more extrinsic motivation, again, with uh, best paper awards, but um, best reviewer awards. But also, um, as an author, I thank the reviewers and the acknowledgements because they actually helped to improve the paper. Um, and uh, even if I disagreed with them, uh, I actually, they usually help me see that, okay, something was not entirely clear or uh, something needed to be added. So I thank them. And uh, uh, as a reviewer, isn't it uh, cool to then see whether the paper got published and whether your voice was heard? Mm-hmm. Uh, like the, there is a feedback loop, even if it doesn't come with a badge of honor. Yeah, so I guess that's another tip is just remember and be mindful that, you know, it is a positive thing, especially if you do a good job. So I you know, feel good about it. And I think we are all as graduate students under enough pressure and stress. So getting kind reviews, getting uh, high effort also reviews. That. Yeah. Also that. And uh, uh, for the PIs, I think it's increasingly important to just... Um, um, tells people that, okay, uh, this is a part of the job. It's not something you do like at midnight after you've done everything else that you were supposed to do. It is a part <laughs> of the job. And uh, you, you, you take time to do that. Right. Yeah, I've definitely been guilty of procrastinating until the last few days or weeks. But, <laughs> you know, it's good to try to change that. And PI is certainly could do more reminding or, or, you know, understanding that your time doesn't just go to research, it goes to these other aspects as well. Yeah. And, and it is valuable because um, you also learn from the papers, you see what, uh, you, you get to see what the peop- other people do, which is good, which is bad. So you, you actually learn from it as, you, as well, right? Mm-hmm. And presumably it is relevant to your research. So also that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah, I think um, that's that's really good that we covered a lot of it. Certainly, I have been reminded of some things and have been reminded to brush up and look up your tutorial and go through it. Um, so, yeah, so I think I, we... I wouldn't say, like, watch all of it because that, that's a lot. I would say uh, see which aspects uh, you are the, less, the least clear on mm-hmm. um, and uh, look at those at least. Right. Yeah. Which makes it even easier to, to go and do it. You know, don't feel pressured to invest a whole bunch of time. Um, great. So I think with that, we can go ahead and close out. Uh, thank you again, Anna, for uh, being on here and, and providing all these uh, useful information, actually, you know, just interesting. Thanks for having me. All right. And uh, let's just do our usual outro. Um, once again, this is the Gradient Podcast. Uh, check out our magazine at thegradient.pub for a bunch of articles on AI and also our newsletter at thegradientpub.substack.com. If you are a fan of our work, you can support us by sharing Gradient with your friends, uh, subscribing, and, and rating and reviewing the podcast, of course. 
Alrighty, and thank you so much for listening. Uh, be sure to tune in to our future episodes.